Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. So, Josh, I was wondering if you could just give us a little intro as to who you are and what you're doing here today, January 2018. I'm an actor. I was born and raised in New York. Mm -hmm. I live in L.A. now. My foray into teaching started in a very weird way. Mm -hmm. There were auditions for the film Eight Mile in New York, and my friend had an audition, and the casting director asked every actor to bring their own reader. So I came in to be the reader for my friend, and in a very weird series of events, I was eventually flown to Detroit to play Eminem's role in the screen test while he watched. And then he screen tested with them. And in between, M, the director, and I worked on the script. Wow. And then they wound up keeping me there. And I basically was Eminem's acting coach on the set of Eight Mile for the entire four and a half month shoot of the film. Wow. So it wasn't anything I was ever necessarily looking to do. But from that, I moved to LA and Someone I knew knew I had done that and invited me to teach at their school. And from there, I started teaching. So I've been teaching for about 15 years in L.A. I run my own school now. And because I worked here in Australia, because I shot, you know, we were talking um, the Pacific here, I have a lot of Aussie friends, Mm -hmm. which at first was just me helping my friends out coaching. And then from that, that kind of web of Aussie actors that sort of are all connected, especially in L.A., a lot of Aussies started coming to me for coaching and stuff. Great. Such a good lesson in how, you know, just saying yes to something small, like helping out a friend with a a reading, can lead to something which leads to something which leads to something. By saying yes to things and being open where this crazy journey that we're on leads us. 100%. So let's just talk about, first of all, the audition room in LA. And I guess... A good thing to understand which you would have a bit of insight into is some of the differences between the Australian experience and then the the Australian landing in LA so what's the process like and what are some of the challenges that Aussies face when they get there I'm glad you used that word (laughs) there's no process there's no process there's nothing right so here in Australia it tends to be that you go into an audition you might have had five days prior to prep it which is remarkable. You will go in and the casting director, who's one of probably the four or five or six that are here, they know you, they chat with you, you talk about the character, then they ask you if you wanna just run it for the words, right? Yep. Um, Yeah. And, uh, And then you run the scene and you run it again and then you run it again. Yep. And then maybe one more time. Yep. And then you do the next one. Right? An LA audition typically runs like this, especially when the casting directors don't know you. Okay? Um, So here, for an audition, I I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm assuming it's probably like 12 people for a role or, you know. No, less than these days. Probably five or six. So if you're in the room, you're like, you're you're very close. Okay, so in LA, in the room, depending on what the role is, if it's a series regular on a new show, on a pilot, they might be 40. It could be 50, as well as a collection of self-tapes from England, Canada, New York, Chicago, here, Sydney, maybe something from New Zealand, you know, who knows. And lately, uh, Danes. Wow. A lot of Danes have been cast, I think, because there was a couple of very cool Danish actors on on Game of Thrones. Yeah. And uh, so, because of that, and it may not be 40 in a day, it might be 40 over two or three days, right? But your audition tends to go like this. You get your sides and the script. If you've got a big agent, like the biggest of agents, you might have five days. Like a CNA, William Morris Endeavor, that kind of thing. If you have a, a strong agent, you might have three days. If you have, a, if you have a really good middle agent, you might have two. And the other agencies, it might be the night before. Okay, with anywhere from six to 12 pages of sides. Right. You work on them. You're not expected to be off book. 
because during pilot season, especially if your pilot season is busy, you might, you know, if you're lucky and it's going really well, one friend of mine had 13 auditions in a week. Whoa. Yeah. I, I've never had that experience. You'd be lucky to get that in a year. Yes. I once had three in a day for pilots. And I remember going, oh, this is what pilot season's about. Yeah. I had to plot out my driving routine, yeah. my costume changes. I started plotting out where I was going to eat yeah. so that I had the whole day planned, you know. But when you go into the room, especially if they don't know you, it typically goes like this. Hey, really good to meet you. Um, any questions? No. Great, let's go. Okay. Scene one, right? Did you finish the scene one? They go, cool, let's do the next one. You finish that scene, they go, good, let's do the last one. They go, cool. That might be your whole audition. Yeah. One go at each scene. It's possible that you might get an adjustment or a redirect mm -hmm. for a scene or two, and that's it. Okay? Okay. If there's a director in the room, or a producer, or both, which oftentimes will happen in a callback or getting closer to a screen test, but not necessarily, you might get a little bit more adjustments, yep. right? There are certain casting directors that are more active in adjusting actors, right? But because the numbers game is so high, I think you need to go into an audition with a far more crafted performance. And by crafted, I mean your take on it, yeah. fully realized. So how do you do that when you've got 13 auditions in a week and you got the sides the night before? It can be uh, difficult, yeah. right? One is I throw learning lines out the window, Great. right? And I developed a skill set of being able to use the page as a tool. Oh, yeah. Right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I had a teacher uh, who used to tell us to take the New York Times, because it's a very small print newspaper, open it up to a page I'd never seen before, hold it in front of a mirror, and try to read as much of an article I've never seen to myself making eye contact. So I literally train my eyes in the ways, they do this with athletes in the States, I don't know if they do it here, where they'll put a screen up in front of them, with uh, like a computer screen, um, with circles, and then they'll pop open with numbers like 456, 111, 333, and then 456 will come here and you have to tap and tap, right? Yeah. And it literally is about creating a very quick reaction. Yeah, so true. I learned to grab whole sentences or, or chunks of text eventually off the page. And it's so tedious and it's so weirdly technical, yeah. but it's a skill set that's helped. I try to get very specific with actions and beats and moments with a scene. So that also helps ingrain the, most of the text in my body, right. right? And I do this with my students as well. So that really what it comes down to is reading the script, reading the sides, whatever information you have, and allowing your creative process to say, not what you think is right, this is what this is. This is how I feel about this. This is the relationship here. This is what I want. This is how I'm gonna go about getting it from the other character in the scene. Yeah. And then carving that out the way you do over a month-long rehearsal process yeah. in a play, yeah. right? Where you're finding the moments. I think you have to develop a shorthand for that. And then I'll use the script as a visual roadmap. Yeah. So I will circle a word. Or I'll, you know, if I feel like a line needs to be like, you know, to aggressively put someone in their place, I might put an exclamation yeah. point or a fist or yeah. just a big <laughs> screw, you know? Or if I get punched in the middle of the scene and it's the kind of moment that oh, comes out of nowhere, yeah. I'll give myself a visual hint that it's coming so that I can, cr so when, I, when I'm reading with you and I glance down at the page, that little part of my mind is like, the punch is coming so that I don't lose the rhythm of the scene. Right? Yeah. I try to work on um, quickly figuring out genre. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like single camera comedy has a certain dropped in realism, right? Versus three camera comedy, which is much more like friends, like pop, pop, pop. And so what's the musicality of it? Yeah. A CSI type drama is typically gonna drive quite quickly, you know, with like one or two moments. But a more, like something like This Is Us, mm -hmm. I don't know if that show has come here yet yeah. or not, something like that is gonna allow you to kind of breathe into it a little bit more. Yeah. Or The Handmaid's Tale, which is gonna allow for some of that really, really rich work. So it's really understanding 
the style, yeah. kind of like different to doing Shakespeare and doing Neil Simon. Yeah. Right. Those the the more knowledgeable I am on on type and genre and music and rhythm, the easier I start to get a shorthand. And the more scripts you read, I'm not always right about this, but a lot of the time I'll start reading a side and I'm like, guys, I, I know where the scene's yeah, going, yeah. and that allows me to start crafting as I'm going. I'm sensing you have to go in with a with a, a confidence that um, this is what I'm giving you and actually just get backing yourself with that. Would that be right? Yeah. Is that something that you find Australians struggle to do a little bit to start with? Yep. Yeah. It's the tall poppy syndrome yeah, yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Which, it's like, a real thing, by the way. If you think that it's not, um, I, it really is a thing. It is. It, you know, I mean, one of it's an energetic thing. Like Americans, as someone said in class today, our sentences are statements. Yeah. I think this, and I think this, and I think this, and I think this. And that's just really the music of it. I mean, sh- I come from New York. It's really statements. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like boom, 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 you yeah. know? So, and Aussies tend to kind of pull away a little bit naturally. So the rhythm is a little bit off. Or upward, like... Upward inflection. Upward inflect, like Canadians do as well, yeah. right? It's, you know, I was saying to them today... I had a great day, yeah. and I want to be like, did you? Because <laughs> it sounds like a question to me, because an upward inflection is like, did you go? But it was awesome, I, right? We're, ours are much more flat in yeah. that, right? It's also really, I think, about ownership in terms of your own creative process, because there's, there can be, not always, but there can be very little process in the room, right? Then you've got to work that process out on your own and bring that in. Yeah. And as my friend uh, Nicole, Nicole De Silva, who's an Aussie actor, and she did this talk back with me in Sydney, yeah. she likes to think of auditions as her first rehearsal. So, because for, for her, that removes the pressure of having an absolute performance carved out and rather being, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Like, this is how I see it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get a redirect, you're an actor who's trained and skilled, Take the redirect yeah. and, and say fuck it to your choices and see where that brings you. But it really is more about coming in a little bit more formed from how your sensibility speaks to the text. Yeah, great. That's a really big shift, I think, for, for us here. You know, that, um, that sense of preparation, it's often about the lines. And, and I think maybe, too, because um, auditions sound like they're a lot more scarce here than what they are in L.A. Well, that they just are. Um, there's a lot more writing on it perhaps for us here. So it's good to kind of have that sense of flip the script a little bit yeah. um, and focus the preparation on style and form rather than the words themselves. It's like that magic thing that happens when you're in a theatre audition mm-hmm. and they hand you another side yeah. and they go, could you take a look at that? And you've only got 10 minutes to look at it and you just go with what your instincts Instinct, are. Yeah. That, that becomes part of it. Because just while you were talking about how there's less auditions here, so a lot more rides on it, something that I, and this may be a question that's going to come later, yeah. but um, one thing that I think is really important is that when Aussies go over for pilot season and their agents are like, you got to be here, and here's my twelve or $15,000 that I've saved, and you put all that pressure, I think that has to go away too. Sure. You just have to look at it as another, another road you're walking down in your career. Yeah. Because... That kind of need or want is never helpful. Yeah. Right? Wanting it is great, but being able to throw it away and just kind of fucking be there, I think is important. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> um, You'll make a million dollars if you can answer that question. You say, fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. Good. But okay. for real. Like, and what I was saying to the students, and I think this is important, is also to go over there. I mean, you go into the States, right? Like, I'm here to teach. I just taught in Sydney. I'm teaching here now. I fly back in a couple days. But I got here on the 30th of December because I'm blessed with a lot of Aussie friends. And while I was in Sydney, I went to the Royal National Park. And I went to the Blue Mountains and saw the Three Sisters. And I went to the Janolan Caves. And I pretty much dove into Bondi or Bronte every day. And I went to some of the, um, the harbor beaches. Yeah. And uh, I did the manly hike with a friend of mine. So I, I, I had a fuller experience. And that shit exists in L.A. 
you drive an hour and a half up to Ojai and you're in this completely different place and an hour past that in Santa Barbara and you can go wine tasting and check the central coast out you go up to the redwood forest in a five and a half hour drive just north of San Francisco mm -hmm. right you go down to Joshua Tree you can go during pilot season you could drive an hour and a half away and go skiing four hours away and go to Mammoth and go to like a really good ski mountain or six hours north and go to Tahoe when the greatest ski mountains on the west coast right yeah. you can take a boat ride to Catalina and go scuba diving in the kelp forests with a bunch of seals that'll freak you out because you think some of them might be sharks right <laughs> but those are things you can do yeah but most people don't right so you sit idle if you're if you've got a thousand auditions You've got to manage that, the anxiety of, oh my God, I've had seven auditions this week, I'm freaking out. Yeah. But when you have one in two and a half or three weeks and you've spent all that money and you're sitting around doing very little mm. during the day, you start to trip out. Every city's like another, huh? Like, you know, LA is a city. Yep. Like New York is, like Melbourne is, like Sydney is. Totally. Um, there's theater, yeah. there's museums, there's music, there's great food. Yeah. But it, and if you experience those things and use that, it'll also, Nicole said this, and I think this is true, it'll help you understand America and the Americanisms that appear in scripts because some of those things will actually become specific to you. Yeah. Watch American news, which is really rough these days. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I, 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 and, and look, there's anxiety in it yeah, yeah. for all of us. Yeah. You know, I'm going right back from here into pilot season. I put two self tapes down when I was in Sydney. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, nothing's better than working as an actor. It's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. So it's all we want to do. Yeah. But just trying to keep it right size, I think, is important. Cool. A car in LA. It's kind of essential, yeah? Like, public transport's nothing like Melbourne. You know? No, public transport is nothing like Melbourne at all, right? Um, I have friends who now make and buy on Lyft and Uber. Lyft is like Taxify, which is that is a new uh, Uber yeah. uh, here. Um, those two companies, people can get by. And, you know, this is one of those things that you can judge or guesstimate yeah. because... If you're super if you're super busy with 15 auditions or 10 auditions in a week, that might get really expensive. Yeah. Because LA is physically massive. Yeah. You know, from from the beach to say where I live on the east side, like Echo Park, Silver Lake, I think is something like 15 miles. So that's like 25k. Yeah. And the same direction goes into the valley. Mm -hmm. So if you have an audition on the west side, then the valley, then the, then the east side, you might spend $90 that day American on Ubers, yeah. right? But it really just depends how busy you are. One thing that I will say, as, so, but I think it's best to have a car. I really do. Because the other thing is, is if you're busy and you're roaming around a lot and doing a lot of things, you, um, your car becomes a really great location for you to change clothes, oh. to get a moment to be quiet. A home office. A home office, yeah. to listen to music, to get you emotionally prepared, to sit quiet. You see it all the time. Yeah. I always, if I don't know where my audition is, like I think it's over here, I will eye at least three dudes sitting in their car <laughs> with their sides open, and I'll be like, okay, I'm in the right place, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think if you can afford it, and you're a good driver, and you relax, and either get a headset or Bluetooth, yeah. right? Um, your, uh, it's, it's way better to have a car. Yeah. And help you learn the city too, so you'll feel a little bit more active and present in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's just say Australian actor arrived in LA and let's say we've done everything you've said, you've got some representation here, lined up some meetings, representation there, and things are gonna be happening. What do you do in your little bit of downtime from when you arrive to when you, you, know, you start kicking off meetings and things, what would be your advice to getting settled and getting your shit together? Well, I mean, you know, you've got those, the simple brass tack stuff, right? Like if you're gonna have a car, yeah. you know, I would start researching and looking that up before you get there, where you're gonna rent from, where's a safe place, where, you know, or if, are you gonna buy something or, or, or lease or, or something like that. Same thing with where you live, right? I was joking with the students today, everybody lives in West Hollywood. I don't know why. 
like West Hollywood is great. I have no problems with Hollywood. It's beautiful, but it's a massive city. You know, like if you love Melbourne and you're here, right? And then you probably are going to feel more comfortable on the east side, Silver Lake, Los Feliz, Echo Park, right? Because just it, the vibe of it is more Melbourne than not, right? If you're a beach person, you could live on the beach. It's going to be further away from most of your auditions, but that might be a better uh, emotional kind of thing. Um, I would research where these meetings and things are yeah. so you get a little bit of a lay of the land. Um, I would, if you do yoga, find a yoga studio near where you're going to live. Yeah. Find a gym near where you're going to live. And then, you know, when I first got out of drama school, my teacher told us that our first year, our job was not to book anything. Our job was, uh, was to find a good survival job, a good place to live, and audition as much as possible. Mm -hmm. If we could do those things, we were successful in setting up our world as an actor. So I would look into doing that. You know, yeah. if you have a green card, maybe, this may sound insane, maybe you want to find a part-time job to have at night just because it'll give you something to do, which will make you feel like an active part of humanity and not just sitting around waiting for auditions yeah. or something to volunteer at or whatever. Yeah. I think you could research that stuff and start to see what your options will be when your feet are on the ground. Yeah, cool. Can you talk to us a bit about the American accent and how important it is for Australians to have that nailed when they go there? Yep. The rules or protocols of walking in and being an Aussie and doing an accent, all of that kind of stuff. So there's no rules about any of it when yeah. it comes down to it. You know, like anything I say is just my experience, my, my, my friend's experience, my, my student's experience, right? So let's, let's be clear with that. Um, there used to be a time, I think right around the time the Pacific we were auditioning, like maybe 10, 11 years ago, where there was this absolute love affair with Aussies. Yeah. So you guys could come in, in dialect, chat it up, go into your American, go, and they would be like, wow, you're a wizard, right? But now there are so many, but, but now there are so many Aussies out there, right? There's a little bit of, like they do with all of us, show us what you got. Yeah. So most of my Aussie friends and clients will say that they go in in the American dialect for the chat before. Right. Hey, it's nice to meet you, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, and stay in their American, do the scenes, and then when they're done, they might drop out of it. Because then if you've convinced them, then again, you're a wizard. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but... What happens, and this is something one of my students do, I will leave out all names for protection of their career. One of my students, and I told this to this, the, the students in the workshop today, he was frustrated by the amount of Aussies and Brits getting cast. He's a very talented young guy, and uh, he went into an audition in a Cockney dialect. <laughs> Hello guys, it's great to meet you, part of my Cockney. And uh, then did the scene in American, and then finished they asked him questions, and he was like, yeah, right, da, 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 and went back into Cockney, and he left. Got a phone call from his agent. What the fuck did you just do today? And he said, I told you I was gonna go in in Cockney. And they said, well, here's your note. Good actor, terrible American accent. He's American. <laughs> wow. So. That's a great sketch for like. It's an amazing yeah. sketch, right? Yeah. We're claiming the copyright. SNL, SNL, we've got that one. Right? Yeah. But here's the deal, is that it's because instantly their ear, hearing the foreign dialect, goes, what can I pick up now? Right? So I think you should go in in American. Yeah. And, that's, and that was really told to me by clients. Right. Right? And I guess it's easier, too. Like, you know, you're working on the scene. Yep. Like, unless you are, and there are very few people that are... Um, accent wizards and there are people that are but it's just much easier on your mouth and your tongue to just write it through 100 yes. percent. and that chit chat before i think for any dialect that you do be it a regional american be it german be it whatever yeah. you should be able to completely improv chit chat bullshit in that dialect or that dialect is not mastered by you yeah. so when i have dialect work to do i do it i walk around all day in a minnesota or a boston or a southern and i will also sometimes sit down with a friend and have them interview me or and ask me questions so that i have to respond in dialect yeah. so that it becomes free when it's free off the text then on the text it's way easier and i guess going back to um you know your comment of 
getting out of town, which, by the way, it sounds like you could start up a secondary business as a travel agent for, <laughs> for Aussies coming in. Um, that would be a great opportunity to sort of practice your skills out in the real world and, you know, mess around with accent and totally try and convince real people. Yeah, cool. So a bunch of people here are potentially going to be heading into pilot season. So right now, what would you tell them at this point to prepare to make it easier to head off? To go there? Yeah. Uh, you work on your, start working on your dialect now and start making it a regular practice. Like when I was in drama school, when I started drama school, I had a lisp, right? Like a splat, like a, like a sloppy S. And I was threatened that on the first day of class that they were going to kick me out if my lisp wasn't fixed by the end of my first year. Sheesh. So I woke up every morning and I drilled my S's and then for one hour a day, every day at lunch with one of my classmates who I really, really felt comfortable with, I would talk concentrating on my S's, right? Mm-hmm. For an hour until by the end of my first year it wasn't a problem anymore and I was told I wasn't on I wasn't even put on warning, not probation. Yeah. So, I, so I would say, if you're going to do that, an hour a day, sit down and work on your American dialect. I would even say to go so far as to find a template of someone, this was what my friend of mine who's a dialect coach does, who has what feels like a very sort of standard, easy American dialect. Like, as a woman, I'd be like, like a Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Someone who doesn't feel super regional. There's so much material to listen to her talk, right? Yeah. And then... Take recordings of it, record yourself, and listen back and forth, and train your ear to what's off. So I think that would be helpful. I think planning some of these things you like to do, right? LA is a city, as every city has its own energy, LA is a city, I was saying this today as well, if I was in New York with three of my actor friends, we might talk for five or 10 minutes about our careers and our business, We'd spend some time talking about New York sports. We'd spend a lot of time talking about politics, a lot of time talking about art, and a lot of time talking about our personal emotional lives and relationships. I'll take those same three actors and bring them to LA, and 80% of the conversation will be about the business and what we auditioned for and what we saw and who got what and who tested for what. It's just the energy of the city. So Aussies tend to, and we were joking about this today as well, and in, in Sydney, Aussies tend to go over conglomerate together and hang out together in pubs and drink, right, or whatever, but sometimes, often, with Aussies that you kind of wouldn't hang out with here, right? Yeah. And then you get inundated with the, she went out for this and she booked that and he tested for this and this, and now all of a sudden you're in this, oh God, oh God, why am I not going out or why did I not test, right? Yeah. So I would say set up things for yourself to do, right? If you play guitar and you want to learn a certain style, find a teacher and hook yourself up to do that. Or, 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 or if you like to run on the beach, try to find an apartment close to the water. We have beautiful beaches there, right? They're not as great as Sydney, but they're pretty good, right? So I, I think that that becomes important because I think taking care of yourself emotionally can't be understated because the difference in the way you audition here versus there, yeah. I've seen it in people's first year there, yeah. crumble them emotionally. Because even though they're doing well, they don't know it. Because they're, they're used to that exchange where you're getting feedback, and, yeah. you know what I mean? So I think that that's important. The other thing I think is important too is if you're rep there, it's probably better to go over there with meetings set up than come over here and we'll set up meetings for you, right? Okay, can you talk about that a bit more? Like Yeah. This just happened to a friend of mine. He went over there. He was over there for a month and a half. His reps wanted to get him there to set him up with an agent in like October, September, October, so that he could come for pilot season now. So he flew over, did the whole thing. Saved money, rented a place. He spent four weeks with zero meetings. Then he was getting ready to fly back, and they were like, we need you to stay for one more week. And then he had one meeting, which went well, and he was excited, this was worth it, landed back in Australia, they informed his reps that they didn't want to represent him, right? So I would say, if you're gonna make that date and you have reps here who have contacts, you should start a conversation about what the best time is, and then you should say, okay, I'm gonna go between here and there. Set up meetings, let's get those set. 
And when you have them set, I will book the actual flight so I know whether to leave on Tuesday the 11th or Thursday the 14th. 13th. 13th. Right. Yeah, right? That's right. I've been yeah. teaching for six hours. And, you know, there's, what, 24 hours between here and there? So yeah, I'm sure yeah. you would have been right in one sort of time zone. Right. Yeah. So I think you want to have that set up, you know, for whether it's for reps or casting directors yeah. or whatever. Obviously, auditions happen differently because they come fast. They yeah. get a breakdown, set them up, and boom, you're going. But... If you can do that, then you know what you're walking into. It's a common belief here that there's no point in going to LA unless you've already got an established film and television career here or you've got something to go on the back of. Um, is that still accurate or has that shifted at all? Like what? I think it depends. Right. I think, I hate to say this. Depends on age? Yep. Yeah. If you're 19 years old, you've done absolutely nothing or 22 and you're just out of NIDA or WAPA or VCA and you know one of the bigger agencies or strong agents picks you up right out of training and he or she is like I'm, I, I want you to go to the States for pilot season you with no credits could be could act that could actually be your calling card mm. she's undiscovered he's undiscovered they're young and they're hot and they're bomb and they're trained and boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Right? But going over there in your 30s with no credits, chances are you're probably not well represented here. Yeah. And then you're going to have a really rough time there. Yeah. The other thing I would say is this. What's more important isn't necessarily how many credits you have, right? But if you're good at your craft and you're well represented here where they have contacts, most of your credits here don't matter. And I, I, I cringe to say it mm. because they matter as an artist and they matter as like building a fan base and your skill set. And it means something to some reps there, right? But most of them aren't going to have seen what you've done. Yeah. Having a good show reel, if you've done great work here, will be helpful. But sometimes they're like, well, we want to see, see something in an American accent. But if, you, if your reps here get you strong reps there who really believe in you, that's what matters the most. Right. Someone who's excited you're coming over and is like, I want to get you out, then I think that, then that's, that's the most helpful. Okay. So on representation, can you talk about the difference between an agent and a manager? Yeah, there's barely any. Okay, yeah. Now. Right. You That's know. shifted? Yeah, and it's been shifting that way for a while. There's a lot of managers who just operate like agents. They're super hooked up. Like, the head of talent at my agency just left to open her own management company. Right. right? And six years ago or five years ago, the former head of talent at my agency left to form his own management company. So a lot of them have relationships and, and all that kind of stuff that they can make it work. It used to be way back in the day, I think really before I was doing this, that agents got you auditions and negotiated contracts and managers kind of managed your life and people would say, you don't need a manager until you have like a big career. Yeah. Now, I have a lot of friends who only have a manager. I have a lot of friends who only have an agent and I have people who have both. It's really about, and this is the kind of like, for the last few years, the term that's used I kind of hate it, but it's like, what's your team? Right. You need your team, right? If you think about the positive side of it, like, yeah, they should have your back. So if your manager and agent are both working for you and double teaming, making the calls, one's calling production, one's calling casting, and they're hitting it from all angles because they have different connections, that's going to help you get in rooms, yeah. you know? Um, one thing that I think is important, and, and this is a personal thing and how you build it, is also the relationships you have with them. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are afraid of their representation. Afraid to call them, afraid to reach out, afraid to ask questions. And I think that that's a shame. So I think you have to find your own way, because everyone here is different, to build a relationship with your rep. Don't overwhelm them. Don't be like, I'm not afraid to call, and then call them four times a day, because they're going to drop you, because you're going to be a pain in the ass. But figure out what that balance is to, to form a relationship so that you feel connected to them somehow, whether it's a super professional business way and you guys operate like that or a personal way, you know? I like to take my reps out for lunch. Right. And I like to sit down 
and and say like so where are you from like what's up what's your deal you know why why do you like agenting do you like it you know what's your favorite thing what's your fa just ask some questions about themselves yeah because I want to get to know them and know where we vibe yeah you know same thing about meetings yeah. a meeting should be like a first date um, so what happens a lot and we've all done this or at least I've done it gone in and in my meetings with agents I talk about my resume I trained here I did this I did this I did this I did this it t tells them absolutely nothing about you but on a first date with somebody I'm trying to uh, make them laugh mm -hmm. I'm trying to make them understand how my heart operates mm -hmm. and when I go into meetings with with agents or reps or casting directors that's how I want to talk mm -hmm. know your worth know what you want to do share that and go from there right um, moving on from pilot season into self-test, which is something that a lot of Australians are doing more of, and obviously yep. it's a very small world these days, and technology makes it very, very, very easy. So what advice generally would you have for Australians for pilot season doing their own tapes? I think there, if possible, be off book, because on camera, where they're not meeting you in the room, the moment your eyes drop from camera for too long, you're, you disappear out of the scene, mm. right? Or cheat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. write your script on a whiteboard, tape it to the camera, whatever. I, you you want to know it well enough that you understand what the moments are, right? But it shouldn't be about, like anything, memorizing your lines. So if you, if, you know, I had a self-tape here and I got it the night before with the time difference and all this kind of stuff, I basically had three hours to look at it between teaching and the whole deal. So we set the camera up on a tripod. I took my script. I taped it to the, it was on, we were doing it on an iPhone. So the lens is on this side. Yeah. We taped it right to the middle. Yeah. I worked on it as much as I could and then I had a cheat sheet if I needed. And you can do it a couple, I mean, that's the, the yeah, you do it, about it. Do it till it's, you do it till you get it right. You do it till you get it right. And by getting it right, it means what's your way. But honestly, yeah. I think two to three takes per scene, done. It's always take two or take three. It's always take two or take three. People get super obsessive about it. Yeah. And you do seven, eight, 14, 15 takes, and it's just fucking dead <laughs> and deadly and death. Nothing happens. Nothing lives, right? Yeah. So I think, I think that. I also think you can, you can be creative, and I'm just going to continue to forget his name, and it's a shame. Who knows his name? Deka. Deka what? Deka yes, Deka Montgomery, who did Stranger Things 2. Everyone should go online. It's posted all over YouTube and watch his self-tape for Stranger Things too. It's super genius. It's a great performance, it's alive, it's super risky, and it's super motivated by the character. So the character, you know, is brash and this and that. So he does the first scene with sunglasses on, I think, and no shirt on. He doesn't even, sh I don't even think he shows like much of his chest. You can just see that he's got no shirt on. And so he's, and he, you know, he's, so he's super playful and super cocky. Then instead of fading to black and crossfading into the second scene, it cuts to him with like a toothpick in his mouth, I think, and the sunglasses on and music playing. And instead of a fade to black, he's just dancing, <laughs> you know, with no shirt on and then cuts right to the next scene. And then in the next scene, he does what is, this is where my friend Nicole and I think is super genius. The scene takes place of him driving and he's driving and his friend is like, slow down, slow down. That's all the dialogue. Well, he's supposed to, the, the scene is, he doesn't say much. He's just driving the car and disregarding his friend. You know, how the hell do you bring that to life on a self-tape? And what I say it's, is about the meaning of the moment. And the meaning of that moment is, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck about what you're saying. I don't give a fuck about what's happening. So what did he do? He blasted music, did not look at the reader, and just like danced and hollered and hooted like, woo, yeah. And the guy's going, slow down, slow down. And he creates the energy of, I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's about finding the solution in the way that lets you live through the scene the best. Yeah. And then send it off and forget it. Cool. You know, because you can't have any control of that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, in terms of quality of the recording, you know, there's there's a lot of people that set themselves up here to like help with um, some yep. tapes um, and charge, you know, not very much. But if you're suddenly, you know, you've got ten of them. Ten. It gets very expensive. Yep. So how important is it 
um, to have good quality lights and sound in a little studio or can you get away with an iPhone in your hotel room? I think sound is everything. Right. Right. However, I've made self-tapes on iPhones if you're in a, if you're in a quiet room. You know, the newer the iPhone, the better the quality. Yeah. So I think that that helps. Um, I think you can buy a couple of light boxes on Amazon or whatever for like 50 bucks. And if you're doing 10 self-tapes, you're going to have some pretty good lighting. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be total shit, but it doesn't have to be the best, the best quality ever. But I think the more professional you can have it feel, the, I think the better it is. And you know? so, so you would recommend sound yep. would be the priority? I would only frame. because sound can, like yeah, that. a simple frame. But, you know, like, I know a lot of people who, who tape on iPhones. Yeah. And that seems to be just fine. Yeah. Yeah, from the ground. Yeah, cool. All right, let's move on to, let's say we've booked the role. We've gotten something. We've landed something. Yes. Um, it's not always the end of the story, though. Like, that, you, what can happen? Like, what is, what can... How, how far into a process do you need to go before you can say, hey, mum, I'm going to be on TV on the 3rd of July? Well, there's so many. I'm going to give you the first one. So, and, and I don't know if this is still the same here, but table reads in Australia seem to be somewhere a bunch of people get together and just kind of read. I have seen in my career, one, two, three, four, in my own career at table reads, I've been involved in, I've seen four actors get fired. Wow. So you've auditioned, got the gig, gone to the table read, and they didn't like you? I didn't get fired, so I'm not going to take it on me. <laughs> no, no. But, 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 yes. Right. Right? One of them, she actually didn't get fired. She got the series regular on the pilot. She, she was foreign, right? I think she was in South America somewhere. Yeah. Very talented, but she just kind of thought, like, oh, it's a read. Right? But the pressure's so high, especially at network level, that they were like, that's not the performance we want. And her agents had to beg, 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 beg for them not to fire her. And I've seen people get fired. So I guess it's three that I've seen fired. Wow. I have a friend who does a lot of sitcoms, right? And she's, she has been like the sort of like leading lady on a sitcom for table reads. And, you know, I'm not saying that this is fair or good and maybe this needs to change, but she knows... She gets her hair done professionally, she gets makeup done, she gets dressed up, looks real good, and she also finds like three or four extra jokes that she could add or improv. So she's ready to play, lets the writers know she's ready to play, and lets everyone relax knowing she's got it covered. Wow. Right? Now, the more famous and the more powerful you are, the less of that you need because you're coming with enough of an arsenal and them believing in you. Now. It's not common that get people get fired from table reads. Let me make that clear. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying show up to do your work and also show up to enjoy it, you know? Like it's fun to act. So at a table read, you get to meet your cast and be like, let's see what's up. Yeah. So bring it, right? Because I've gotten jobs when I was brought on as a reader at a table read and got in like a guest star on an episode of something because I got to act that day. And uh, so there's that. Then you book the pilot. If it's not a pilot with a guaranteed go, right, you're gonna shoot it. You might shoot it for two, three, or four weeks. And you know, depending on how good your deal is, you might make 25, 30, 35, $37,000 for the pilot, right? If you have tons and tons of credit and an amazing agent, you could make more, but chances that's probably somewhere in there, maybe, I don't know. Uh, then you're done. Now, They'll edit it and you'll do ADR and all that other stuff. And now they're gonna take that pilot and the seven others or 10 others in that area that um, that network's looking at and they're gonna watch them all. They might test them at, with, an, with, a, with audiences and then they will then decide which pilot's gonna get picked up. And you probably won't know until a few, it, it, until a few days or a couple weeks before Upfront where they present the new shows. So there's that as well. My buddy, we were doing a play. He booked a pilot. He had to drop out of the play. He went to New York. He shot for a month. It was a huge budget pilot. He was super excited. He made his whatever he made. Three months later, found out that his pilot wasn't picked up, and he was right back to where he was. George Clooney's the most famous for it. Before he got ER, I think he did 10 or 11 pilots uh, in a row. Yeah. One pilot a year for 10 or 11 years. None of them got picked up. 
and then ER happened, and all of a sudden he became George Clooney. Yeah. Right? So there's that. If it's picked up, then it depends upon when they're going to air it. It could be a beginning of the new season thing in September. It could be a mid-season replacement, which means it'll be like January, February, and March. I've heard of pilots being held for almost a year. Yeah. Right? So it really just depends on when you're, when you're going to get on. Yeah. Now, I, this, this does sound doom and gloomy, at least in my mind, or maybe I'm just tired. I don't know. But, like, you can, yes, you can get fired. Yes, those things can happen. But I would say this, too. If you book a pilot, celebrate it. Right? Yeah. Celebrate any victory you get. Celebrate good feedback you get. Celebrate callbacks. Celebrate anything that feels positive because the business doesn't readily give you those positives back, um, but they're there for the taking. Yeah. You know? What does a good pilot season look like? So, for an actor from, say, Australia going over and spending some um, time there and meet, having some meetings, what, what do you think that looks like? You know, you were saying first year out of drama school. Um, if you're doing this, this, and this, and it's successful, what is, what is I mean, that for pilot season? I think different people are going to give you different answers to this, right? Yeah. Obviously, the best pilot season that happens, if you, big, you book a pilot, it gets picked up, it goes to series, you shoot that series, and it goes for five years, yeah. right? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Right? Backtrack. For the rest of us. For the rest of us. Book a pilot. Amazing. Doesn't get picked up. You had a great pilot season. Go half a step back. You go and you test for anywhere from one to three different pilots. Book none of them. That's an amazing pilot season. You have been super successful. Your reps are psyched. Your quote of how much you got paid has gone up for each pilot you've done. And there is a, there is a host of fans that you have, casting directors and producers, who are like, didn't cast them, but I really like them, mm. right? You test for one pilot. Also, I think, an awesome pilot season. You test for none. But you get like, let's say you audition for 25 pilots, super active, already positive pilot season, mm -hmm. and you get five or six callbacks to producers. You've had a really good pilot season. You go out 18 times, right? I'm just back, I just try to pull yeah, back yeah, a little yeah. bit. You go out 18 times and your agent says, none of them are going any further, but I have to say, we didn't get one bit of bad feedback. People really loved your work. That, too, is an awesome pilot season, right? So uh, I think if you're there and you're active and you're making connections and being seen, it's good. And you're living your life while you're doing and it. And if time. you can do that, mm. then that's just a good life. That's such... I mean, I think that's great advice for us just being actors living here. You know, so much of us... I, I know... I've often thought that my career is like a bad boyfriend that I just can't get rid of sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you keep going back just because you get that one little bite and you're, it'll change this time. Um, yep. But, you know, you've got to... They never change. There's an insight into my soul. Um, there's, um, you know, I think it's important to find how to just be in the world and have life while doing all of these crazy things that yep. most people in the world don't have to suffer for their careers and things like that. I think it's exactly and that's, true. That's kind of been threading through. I think everything that you've said, you've kind of backed it all up with find other things to keep you driving. Well, one of the things that I think is really huge, I've done this for almost my whole career and really only very recently have I worked actively to change it, mm. is actors live with this thought. When I then I will. Yeah. If I, then I can. Yeah. Right? And what if I don't book a series for five more years? What if I never book a series and just keep guest starring on a bunch of shows? Am I going to limit my own happiness? Mm. Am I going to limit like the, the amount I allow myself to enjoy the things I'm doing, mm. whether professionally or not? Uh, most, many do. I did for a long time. Yeah. I did this other thing too that I think is huge, compare and despair, Yeah. right? I've worked with these guys and they're all here and I'm here, so I must be worth this and they're worth that. Or I must not be good looking enough or my voice must be too high or I mean the shit that I told myself about where I'm at, you know, is remarkable. And I had a friend I had dinner with not too long ago and we were bullshitting and I told him how I'd made this active choice to just be happier about my life. And he said, 
And it shocked me. He was like, you have something most actors don't have. I don't think this is, whatever. It sounds, it was his words. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna own it. Because it's hard not to just go like, oh, this sounds arrogant or this sounds whatever. He said it, whatever. And I said, fine, John, what is that? And he said, respect. He said, you have the respect of every peer that's ever worked with you. I think you're one of the best actors I've ever known. Everybody thinks that. And most people vie for that. And in my head, the old me would have gone, yeah, but I don't have money or consistent work or fame or whatever it is, right? But when I started acting, I remember doing an acting job in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. And it was a play I was desperate to do. I loved the play so much. I made $327 a week. They put us up in student dorms and we got to eat like lunch line food, three meals a day. Sounds like heaven. It was freaking heaven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the play? It was called The Last Night of Ballyhoo. It's an Alfred Urey play. Oh, yeah. And everything about it spoke to like my mother's experience coming as, an, as a Jewish immigrant um, as a being born in a displaced persons camp after the war because her parents' families had all been killed by the Nazis mm -hmm. to New York and dealing with a different kind of racism which was they were Eastern European Jews and the Western Jews like the German and the French did not like the Eastern European Jews thought that they were uneducated yeah, yeah. so much so in New York they built them a different synagogue so they wouldn't come to theirs Whoa. and in the South that existed as well yeah. I loved it I fucking loved it. I had the best summer ever, right? And I lost that somewhere. Mm. I went to LA and got eaten up by like, you've gotta be this successful to be something. And there I had a friend of mine, and my friend is super successful, looking at me going, I respect the fuck out of you, man. And me having to take that in as a positive. And, and I'm gonna be really 100% honest. I feel uncomfortable that I've shared it. I feel, especially because I'm in Australia, I feel like, oh, that's some Amer uh, you know, arrogant American shit to say. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I, I was thankful of the love he gave me by saying it to me, and I was thankful of my willingness to take it in and, and say, yeah, maybe that's a pretty good thing. That's an amazing thing. And... I think I thank you for sharing that with all of us because I know for myself that is something that uh, I'm trying to do more of is to be to be it's what you were talking about before about going into the room with joy and with play and with um, excitement for what it is that we do like we we signed up for this because it's fucking fun it's, it's the best we get it's the best thing in the world to play act. dress ups and pretend to like shoot guns and shit and yeah like it's awesome but the business can sometimes um bring out the the negatives of of competitiveness and the negatives of comparison and i think it's very easy to get sucked into that so it's 100%. great it's i i'm so thankful that you sh you've shared so much of how to kind of get away from that through this experience, so thank you. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is really important to cover or mention or? I, I said this to the students today, I say to all of my students in my classes, um, it's, and it, it also always makes me cringe because it sounds like, I don't know what the word is for the physical thing I'm doing right now. Like, like, meh. Uh, jazz hands? Yeah, yeah. yeah jazz handsy, yeah. right? That's, that's a, that's yeah, a description. Yeah. You know what that is at home, right? Um, is that you are enough. Mm. That you're enough, that who you are, present, available, open in a moment, is distinct. And it's that individuality that makes you an interesting actor, not the attempt to do a role right. Mm -hmm. Like, as, as someone once pointed out to me, you know, when was Hamlet written? 1603, I think? Yeah, something like that. Something like that, right? Some historian's gonna be like, it was 1601, yeah. you dummy. <laughs> Six, let's call it, yeah, 1599, it's something like that, right? So it's been done how many times? A few hundred thousand? Possibly more. Possibly more, maybe a million, million times, yeah. right? Let's say Hamlet was done a million times. When you think of every like teenage boy or girl in their room reciting. Well, now we're in the millions, yeah, right? right? Yeah. So let's say we have a million productions just for good, easy math, Yeah. right? <laughs> let's say 10% of those were like pretty good. 
right? So that's a that's tenth. That's a hundred thousand productions. Let's say one percent of them was like really, 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 really good. That's ten thousand. And let's say 0.1% of them was fucking blow your mind, unbelievable, life-changing Hamlet. Mm. That's a thousand productions of Hamlet. Am I right on this math? I'm shit at maths and I failed that, but I'm going to believe that you're correct. My friend calls yes. me a math magician, so a let's say magician. it. Right? So, so that's a thousand amazing, unbelievable, life-changing performances of Hamlet, which when we do the math on the years, that's like two and a half a year since its inception, okay? Those 1,000 productions of Hamlet are all different. They're all different. And the performance of the role of Hamlet done by men and women throughout history, they're all different. Not one of, they're not like, see, all 1,000 of those did Hamlet right because they all did this. They might be set in a different time. They might be designed differently. They might be done in a fucking black box. They may be done like it was in the globe. They may be whatever they are. And the actors are all going to have interpreted Hamlet in a way that they saw and collaborative create, collaboratively created with their director and their cast and their designers. And boom, they have two and a half a year in the world are unfucking believable Hamlets. And they're all different. And the reason they're different is because they're authentic because those actors and those artists involved were like, I'm enough, this is how I see it, boom, right? And I think that that's massive. That is what you bring into a room by not trying to do what you think they want, but what you believe the character's living through and what the moments are for you. You do that, that's a successful pilot season. Yeah, yeah. My friend Julie and I used to have, the, Julian, we used to have this thing when we, uh, both got to LA from New York. We used to prep each other for auditions all the time. And I would, I, you know, he, we used to do this thing where he would say, um, after an audition, I would call him or see him and he'd say, how'd it go? And I said, um, I don't know. And he would ask me this question. Did you do exactly what you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. And if I said yes, he'd go, great fucking audition. Mm -hmm. And I would ask him the same question because in the end, that's all I could control, right? And I think that comes from just believing in who the fuck you are as an artist, mm. right? Because out there, it's a business. But we're artists in a business. Let your agent negotiate and your manager do that shit. And you go in and you bring your guts and your heart and your joy and your fear and whatever to what you do and fucking leave it there. That's, that would be the last thing I would say. It's pretty fabulous. Thank you. Okay. Um, who has questions? Thank you. Just um, say your name and ask your question. I'm Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Um, I was just wondering, I was in LA last year, this time last year, and I was kind of asking, you know, when is pilot season? When they're like, it's fucking bullshit. There's no... Is, it, is that true? Like, you, you know, the great, the great new pitch is pilot season is year-round, right? right. Um, okay. And in some ways it is, right? In, that, in this sense, like network pilot season is now. And there will be some cable pilots. It will be busier now for the next few months, for sure. It used to be like an insane dash where it was like 49,000 shows were being cast. Uh, in September, October, November, some pilots will roll through especially from cable series who want to try and lock in actors before the bigger money that comes from networks comes. Um, the summer, our summer, tends to be quite slow, especially July and August, right? Um, but there is a pilot season. There is an upfront, so there is things that it's aiming towards. But the business has changed a little bit in its structure. Right, which is another reason why I'm like, if you go over there, it's not like, oh fuck, has to happen now, this year, or I will never be an actor, you know? Because I don't know what Allison Janning's age was when she did The West Wing. 38. 38 years old. I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan. She's, She's a genius. Sublime. Sublime, right? And she had been doing stage, I saw her in a Broadway play in New York, but she wasn't famous, she wasn't well known, she was someone clawing, scratching, and trotting the boards. And at 38 years old, she gets the West Wing, and by the time she's done with the West Wing, she's like 44, six seasons, were there seven? Eight. 
Hey, seven. Seven. So she's 45. And at 45, the real takeoff of her career begins, right? So shit can happen, you know, whenever. I think Gene Hackman didn't even start acting till he was 40. You know, and he won two Oscars. So, yeah. you know, I hold on to shit like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Big <laughs> <Good> time. <laughs> yes. I'm Sandra. Hey, Sandra. Um, I have a uh, direct speech in terms of, because I have a career. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to say I disagree, but I want to say I want to say that with a caveat, which is, you know, like I was waiting tables and paid my bills. Right, and that's not a career, but I had gotten a small role in a big, big, big movie. Right, and I knew I booked the role, but I did not know where I was going to shoot. And I was waiting tables that night, and they called me and said, "You're shooting tomorrow," and I was supposed to wait tables that night. So I went to my manager and said, hey, I just got called. I'm going to shoot this thing tomorrow. And she said, okay, we'll ask everyone who's here tonight if someone will take your shift. And then, you know, I'll make some calls, people down the list. No one, none of my fellow waiters who were all actors would take my shift. Now one. She found no one to cover the shift. She said, sorry, you're out of luck. And I said, well, look, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. And she was not nice about it, but she was nice enough not to fire me. But if she would have, I got to walk, right? So just like my students know when I book a gig, there's going to be a substitute for a week, a month, however long, right? I love to teach, but acting is my priority. So if you, have a, if you have a career and you won't put to the side the other thing, then that's going to be real hard because... How do you stipulate when you work? As my teacher said once, we were in drama school, and uh, this is a very wonderfully dramatic answer to this. Uh, tech rehearsal for our play that we were doing was on Sunday, which was Easter Sunday. Monday was our dark day where we had no rehearsals. So there was a petition that went around, and everyone signed it that said we would like to have tech on the Monday, not on Sunday. And our teacher came in, and he said, in his wonderful, like, theatrical voice, Oh, I got your petition. Listen, your tech rehearsal is on Sunday, not Monday. Theater's your religion now. Oh. <laughs> and then he said, what are you going to do? Take a night off on Broadway and let your understudy go on and take your part? No, you'll show up for work, right? Because it's your life. A good friend of mine, actually he's not even a good friend of mine, he's an actor I know who I just respect the fuck out of. He once said to me in a conversation, this is a calling to me like a calling to the cloth. I feel a need to tell stories and share. And I think that that, if you don't have that, this shit's too hard to go into. You know, I've sacrificed a lot of shit in my life. But I do love my life. I don't have everything I want, but... You know, I think, you, you know, it's got to mean that much to you because it's not easy, you know? I've been told I'm the only guy for the role. I was once chased out of a room and they told me. I, they come back in and I said, what's up? And they said, the character's name was, like, Boots or something. And they were like, you're our Boots. We just want to record that second scene again. And then one of the writer's good buddies, who he'd worked with before, he just went, I want to give him the role. And he gave him the role broke my heart when they called and said, this is Josh's part, we're waiting to finalize the deal. And then it just like went away. No one called. No one, and I was like, what's going on? And then we found out they'd offered to someone else, right? Well, your fucking heart and soul's gotta be in this to hear that. Or those people I know who got fired from table reads. They were like, that fucking crushed me. Gonna audition again, you know? That takes a certain kind of metal and, that's got, and a certain kind of fucking something. So I think you need that to push through. You can have a job and a career. I have tons of friends. I have, a, I have another job as a teacher. I make my, I make a, I do okay. 
you know? And between that and acting, I'm, I'm, I'm alive, I own a home, like I'm an adult, right? But this is in that regard my priority, you know? For most jobs, you know, I'm, I'm gonna do this over that. Josh, thank you so much um, for giving us your time, especially your extra time after a really long day of teaching. Um, it's been incredibly valuable, I think everyone would agree. Um, so really thank nice. you and have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the Foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.